0: So we're going to talk about implications for worship of what we just settled on. So these two points, um, the int- intensification of worship as an inward experience, and now having settled on biblically that the essence or heart of that is a being satisfied with all that God is for us. What does that imply? What are the practical outworkings? And I've got, I think I've got four of them. Number one, the pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It is our highest duty. There are millions of Christians who have absorbed a popular ethic that comes more from Immanuel Kant than from the Bible, that it is morally deficient to seek our own happiness, to pursue joy, to crave satisfaction, to devote ourselves to seeking it. This is absolutely deadly for authentic worship. So, I think… there needs to be some teaching on what I call Christian hedonism. Because if this lurks in your people, that I I get the impression that the pastor or the worship leader here is telling me I should pursue my joy. I should go after it like a dog goes after a bone. or Like a greedy miser goes after silver. Yes, that's what we're saying. That's not Wrong, that's true. Well, that doesn't feel right to me. And as long as it doesn't feel right, they're going to be bound up. They're going to be bound up in worship. They, they want, It'll feel contradictory to them to sing as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, oh God, because I'm not supposed to pant towards a happy experience because that's not denying myself. It's kind of a lurking unspoken, at least it was for me, I've sensed it is for many, that's deadly for authentic worship. To the degree that this ethic flourishes, to that degree worship dies. For the essence of worship is satisfaction in God. To be indifferent to or even fearful of the pursuit of what is essential in worship is to resist worship. Many pastors foster this very thing by saying things like, the problem is that our people don't come on Sunday morning to give. They only come to get. If they came to give, we'd have more life in these services. That is not an accurate diagnosis. People ought to come to get. They ought to come starve for God. They ought to come saying, as a deer pants for the flowing spring, so my soul pants for you, O God. God is mightily honored when a people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. And it is the job of pastors to spread a banquet for them and worship leaders, a banquet of lyrics and a banquet of preaching spread for them. Recovering the rightness and indispensability of pursuing our satisfaction in God will go a long way to restoring authenticity and power of worship. So that's implication number one. Implication number two. Another implication of saying that the essence of worship is satisfaction in God is that worship becomes radically God-centered. Nothing makes God more supreme, more central than a people, than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, and I would add, or life itself, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their aching hearts besides God. This conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. Now, I understand. I don't want to be too hard on pastors when they say these people come to… they're not coming to give. Maybe he's just choosing his words badly. And what he really means is they're coming for artistic experiences. They're coming to meet their friends. Uh, there are things you shouldn't come to get. But if you just generically talk in terms of the problem in the church is you don't come to give, you come to get, you're really skewing the, the heart. Ninety percent of our people do not get up on Sunday morning overflowing with readiness to pour out their praises to God. They need help. They need to be told, you are here all over the map on your spiritual hunger. Some, it's dead. Some, it's 10%, 50, 60. And some are just ready to pour out your heart in praise to God. And we just want to honor that. And let's let's pray as we begin and ask God, come awaken our hearts so that we can enjoy you, know you, love you trust you, magnify your greatness in how we treasure you. You pray like that. And then people realize, oh, he's praying about the way I'm feeling. Like, I'm really tired, and I, don't, I just want to soak here. I don't, I don't feel like doing anything. And he's praying about that. They are not confused about why they are there. They do not see songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions and mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of His fullness. Music carries us Godward, and music with truth lyrics has a way of getting God inward. So music has this God-given power David was called to play so the demons would go away from Saul. It's both glorious and dangerous. It's so glorious that it is dangerous because you can substitute it for God, it for truth. And we need worship leaders who are theologians, who think deeply about their lyrics, think deeply about what's happening here so that they don't manipulate people with the music. And yet it's such a fine line between manipulation and help. You do want to help them? I mean, who who could deny that amazing grace, at least for me, and I, I think it wouldn't be so popular around the world, and for so many decades if it weren't true, is a tune that is so matched and has such an effect that it does something good to us. And in the new tune that we sing to it, what's, what's that one that, that, that we sing Amazing Grace to? That also has a, a, a powerful effect. And then there are tunes that get in the way. And oh, I could talk so long about how lyrics and tunes have to work together. And we will talk some more, I hope, about uh, sloppy art that is so beautiful. The words just don't fit at all. Only this guy at the piano can figure out how to say those words in that cadence and meter. Nobody else can. This is not helpful. We need singable songs. It's okay if you're going to be a performer to sing songs that don't work for anybody but you. But if you're going to lead 100 people, they have to be able to get it. It doesn't work. I, we, I, when, when we sing songs that nobody can figure out, does that word go with that note? Or, does that, or, or do you sing two notes on that and you've done it three times and I still can't get it? That's just too hard. Okay, that's, that's parenthesis. If the focus shifts onto our giving to God. Okay, now, maybe people don't talk much about this, but when I wrote this, this, this seemed to be in the air. If the focus shifts onto our giving to God as opposed to God giving to us in worship, one result I have found again and again is that subtly it is not God that remains at the center but the quality of our giving. Are we singing worthily to the Lord? Are instrumentalists playing with quality fitting a gift to the Lord? Is the preaching a suitable offering to the Lord? And little by little the focus shifts off of the uttered indispensability of the Lord himself onto the quality of our performances and we even start to define excellence and power in worship in terms of technical distinction and of our artistic acts. Um, last paragraph before I make a comment. Nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep heartfelt satisfaction in God and the conviction that the pursuit of that satisfaction is why we are together. We have a phrase here. It's proved very useful over the years. It's called undistracting excellence. Now, the word excellence implies don't hit the wrong note on the piano, and don't sing the third verse when we're supposed to be thinking the fourth. And don't miss a slide when you're clicking through with us. Stay with us. Things like that. That's excellence. Undistracting puts a governor on that. We don't believe in excellence for excellence's sake. Undistracting means let's get everything out of the way that would keep people from getting to the truth and to God. If you constantly make mistakes... If if there're constant misprints in the in the in the things up there, our people can't spell. It just we, nobody's no, nobody gets excessively upset. It just like last night, um, thou was t h o u g h I think something like that. There was there was one misspelled word. I'm I'm on that. It just I mean I'm on it for three sentences and I'm distracted. I'm not singing anymore. I'm thinking about the way that was spelled. And I could give lots of other examples of how little teeny, and you'd say in themselves, absolutely inconsequential things simply get in the way. So I, I want to be a stickler. I want to say, don't make any mistakes in worship. Okay, now we're, we're fallible and, and we're um, finite. So we say this, I, I've said this. I remember one time, way in the early 80s, we had another worship leader, and he was harping on excellence all the time. And I felt the need then to balance by saying, on a Sunday night service, I said, I really value uh, the pursuit of, of excellence in music and excellence in the way things flow, and, but I also value even more excellence in forgiveness. So if you have a, a person who's on the worship team, our solo part, and, and they forget a line maybe, I, I I got goofed up in quoting Psalm 103. You know, I, I know it well enough that I kind of just kept going. But um, I want a church where we quickly forgive. We don't harbor that. Leaders should go and, and say whatever. I mean, if it happens regularly. Say, maybe we need to practice a little more. Practice. So that in the worship service, we don't get in the way... Of anybody, but the the congregation. You want a congregation that just loves her to death, or loves him to death. That that oh, they missed their note. So do I. You know, we all. You know, so excellence is a a moral category as well as an aesthetic category. And a church that only has an aesthetic view of excellence, without a moral view of excellence, is going to start drifting away from the gospel and away from. God and just become an artistic moment where everybody likes to go because the music is just so perfect and everything's just so perfect. Third implication of saying that the essence of worship is satisfaction in God and that it protects the is that it protects the primacy of worship by forcing us to come to terms with the fact that worship is an end in itself. Worship Understood as... now hear, Don't hear me saying worship services are an end in themselves. So when you go out from here, you don't need to witness to anybody. You don't need to love your neighbor. You don't need to do justice. Don't hear that. This is, this is not saying worship services are an end. I'm saying the spiritual act of the heart called worship, colon, being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus... That is an end in itself. If the essence of worship is satisfaction in God, then worship can't be a means to anything else. You simply can't say to God, I want to be satisfied in you so that I can have something else. That would mean that you are not really satisfied in God, but in something else. And that would dishonor God, not worship Him. In fact, for thousands of people and pastors, the event of worship, the event of worship on Sunday morning is conceived of as a means to accomplish something other than worship. We worship to raise money. We worship to attract crowds. We worship to heal human hurts. We worship to recruit workers. We worship to improve church morale. We worship to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling. We worship to teach our children the way of righteousness. We worship to help marriages stay together. We worship to evangelize the lost among us. We worship to motivate people for service projects. We worship to give our churches a family feeling. In all of this, we bear witness that we do not know what true worship is. Genuine affections for God are an end in themselves. I cannot say to my wife, I feel a strong delight in you so that you will make me a nice meal. That is not the way delight works. It terminates on her, not food. It does not have a nice meal in view. I cannot say to my son, I love playing ball with you so that you will cut the grass. If your heart really delights in playing ball with him, that delight cannot be performed as a means to getting him to do something. It's not what delight is. It's not a means. It's an end. That's what delight is. Now, I am not denying that worship will have a hundred good effects in the life of the church. It will. Just like true affection in marriage makes everything better. My point is that the degree that we do worship for these reasons, to that degree it ceases to be authentic worship. Keeping satisfaction in God at the center guards us from that tragedy. That's huge. If you settle that, you know That if you have an experience here where most of your people really connect with God, their hearts really exult in God, you know they're going to come back, they're going to tithe, their marriages are going to be better. But, oh, how subtle the slippage to say, I want their money, I want their marriages right, and I want a big church, so let's do that again. Oh, that's just not worship. We want you. And right now, if we all died, if this building blew up with a bomb, that moment would have been worth it. It was an end in itself. God was being at that moment massively honored by the affections and expressions of this people, authentically connected with Him and loving Him, resting in Him, trusting Him. Everybody wasn't thinking, wow, this is so good, we're going to grow. Fourth and finally. The last implication of saying that the essence of worship is being satisfied with God is that this accounts for why Paul makes all of life an expression of worship. And uh, I think instead of reading those pages, I'll just try to sum it up with my own own words. Um, the root beneath an authentic song of praise toward God's grace, say. I love and admire and depend upon your grace. And this heart is just cherishing it, treasuring it, feeling the worth of it, spilling over in this song. Okay, the root there is the same as standing at the sink. Well, let's change the image. That was last night. Going to Lino Lakes Prison and ministering for an hour in a Bible study with some prisoners, sharing your faith. So this is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer your body to God, a sacrifice pleasing to Him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In this case, Sunday afternoon, going to Lino Lakes, prison. And I'm arguing that becomes worship exactly the same way the song becomes worship. Mainly by coming from a heart that is so deeply glad in the grace of God that it spills over in love to prisoners and in praise to the Father. There's not, a, there's not like two different things in here. So, the point is, the Bible becomes coherent in its treating life as worship and singing as worship. Because the root is the same. Being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. And to the degree that going to the prison isn't coming from there, that becomes legalism. And to the degree that singing isn't coming from there, that becomes formalism. For those to be worship, they come from this heart of satisfaction in God. So that's the end of section number three. And I'm going to try to pace myself here with uh, what we can and can't do in the hour and, what is it, 20 minutes we have left. Um See if I can quickly move through point number four. Because I think probably other things are more practically relevant to you than more defense from the Bible that there should be such a thing as worship services. You, you, you're probably going to do worship services whether I convince you of this or not. So, um, and this is in your book. So let me, just, let me just hit highlights here perhaps. I have seven theses. And the seven theses are developed. One guy asked me last night, so have you ever argued anywhere in a book or somewhere that preaching should be part of worship? And uh, I said, it's not published anywhere, except my, my book on preaching would imply it. But I, I've just, I talk about it in our preaching class here, and this is a summary of, of two or three of those lectures. These seven theses. And so I'm going I'm to go through this quickly because the argument could be expanded to fill up several hours of how you get from the Bible to 21st century worship services, but you can get the flavor of it anyway. This is risky, but I want to go quickly and get to something else. Regular corporate seasons or services of worship, the corporate act of honoring God by the pursuit of satisfaction in God through confession, supplication, thanks, and praise are normative. I'm saying they ought to exist for local churches. I'm not saying when. I'm not saying how long they should be. I'm not saying on what day they should be, what building they should be in, or all the structures. I'm saying something like getting together for confession, supplication, thanks, praise, uh, and there are at least four arguments for, for that. One, there's a pattern of corporate worship in the Old Testament and I assume that this synagogue pattern, um, this developed into the synagogue pattern, and then the early church probably took it over, in the way it could. And and I've got arguments for that that I'm going to let you look at on your own. Thesis number number two. In these corporate services, confession, supplication, thanks, and praise will honor God in proportion to the intensity and authenticity of the affections responding to the truth of God and His ways. There is such a thing as hypocrisy and a mere form of godliness. They are deadly and no honor to God. So, I'm saying there needs to be authenticity and intensity in our affections, Thesis 3, in the real world of ordinary Christians, the pursuit and satisfaction in God through confession, supplication, thanks, and praise does not usually arise in the heart of God's people without being stirred up in some way when they come together. That is, the average Christian does not come to worship service filled with joy in God, ready to overflow. There are at least three reasons for this, like sin and fallenness and all kinds of reasons why we don't, even pastors don't, without great effort. Thesis 4, therefore, essential to a corporate season of confession, supplication, thanks and praise is a fresh declaration of truth about God and a fresh demonstration of affection for God. So you can see how the argument is growing toward preaching and toward singing and why it's just built into the nature of the gathering and the nature of human fallenness and need for grace and need for demonstrations that we have these things. This is true not only because ordinary Christians need to be exposed to truth and awakened afresh to its value in order to respond authentically and intentionally, but also because the declaration of God's truth and the demonstration of its value with appropriate affections is worship. Preaching is worship. Lyrics, when sung this way, are worship. That is, it, dis, it displays the value of God in that it shows He's worth knowing and proclaiming and feeling strongly about. Thus, it would be misleading to think of the declaration of God's truth and the demonstration of affection for God as preparation for worship. It does awaken worship, but it is worship and should always be seen that Way so we know that if a worship team has its hearts prepared for practice in the week and then and then prayer, that when they are worshiping, I call them lead worshipers, not just worship leaders, lead worshipers. Two things are going to happen there: they are doing the authentic thing, and others are being drawn in to it. That's, and so, in that sense, it's, it's help, it's preparation. Um. Just a princess here. You have to be so careful with things like this. I say to our worship leaders, you know, there is a gift of contagion in a worship leader that needs to be there. To the degree that that is missing, you probably should ask that person after a while to try another ministry. What I mean by contagion is this. So we have a team of worship leaders up here, so maybe three, four, five here, and Chuck here, or Ryan, or Dan, or Jason, leading. How those people sing, pray, I mean, they're up here for a reason. How they look matters. How they're dressed matters. How they look with their face matters. And some of them don't help. They hurt. And over time, worship leaders need to get that and, and try to use the gifts of people who have the gift of contagion. Contagion simply means my worship is helping you worship. I'm, I'm infecting you with, with the de- disease of my joy. Got kind of a lousy image, <laughs> but that's the way the word contagion works. Um, okay, close that princess. That's delicate. That's hard. And one of you mentioned to me, and it wouldn't be unique, you have a worship leader who maybe is 80 years old, and she leads from the organ. You say, oh, this is hard, you know. What are you going to do? Because we're excellent in love. We're not just efficient, right? We're not a corporation that just fires people with no sense to lifelong commitment and Do you just pray like crazy that God will work for the good of everybody and not hurt her too badly and and try to, God, do this, work it out so that she feels honored for all of her years of service here and and so that we can move beyond where she is because this is not helping our people. So we all have things like that. She's she's not a very contagious helper. Thesis 5. This fresh declaration of truth about God and fresh demonstration of affection for God honor God most and help people honor Him best when they happen not only in the song, confession, supplication, gratitude, praise, but also in the preaching. In other words, we should not conceive of the service as separated into two, instruction, teaching, lecture, and inspiration, music, and testimony. The preaching should be expository, exaltation, and thus an act of worship. I'm skipping over a lot of text to justify that and just going to one. We just dealt with this in our preaching class the other day. This is the most important passage in the Bible about the role of preaching in worship, I think. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, so Everything's based here so that the man of God may be adequately equipped uh, for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God <laughs> Oops, sorry, and Jesus Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom preach the word. Now the context here is not evangelism on the street corner. This word keruso here for preach is very often used of, of the herald, of the gospel, wherever in the world you get a chance to do it. The context here is very different. you got the Word of God, and then you've got saying to the pastor Timothy, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, great patience, instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away um, their ears from the truth. This, the context here is steady state teaching and preaching to God's people. And the, and the one imperative he chooses is this word preach, and it isn't the word for teach, it's the word for herald. "'Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye.'" Like before there were any uh, books or uh, printing presses or email or radios or television. Uh, You know, 5,000 years ago, you walk into Athens with a message from uh, a king. "'Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, the king hereby declares that there will be amnesty given to all those who have rebelled against the king.'" if they will lay down their arms and swear fealty, thus it be declared by the royal stamp of approval. That's preaching. That's heralding. And if a little child comes up to you and says, "Uh, Swear fealty? I don't know that word, fealty. What's fealty? Then the herald explains, which is why all preaching has teaching in it explanation because everything needs to be unpacked. But the feel the feel of preaching is kerux, keruso hear ye, hear ye, hear ye if if a church ever loses the sense of this is news this is not mainly a body of doctrine to be argued about. This is spectacular news, news, news he came he's moving people are being set free the concentration camps are being unlocked. He's getting his arms in a healing way around the dying. It's news that that's, preaching should feel like that. And I think this text implies it's normative. It's there and it's part of Timothy's steady state uh, life with his with his people. So that's that's the end of that section on. Uh, worship services are normative and preaching is a normative part. That was really quick, and I'll let you work that out on your, on your own. I said last night that I was going to read this to you or work our way through this. This is what I produced in, oh, I wish I could remember the date, would have been mid-90s maybe, so there's some dated things in here. But here, here's the situation. You have a church... In in great crisis because of a certain there was immorality on the staff and then and that broke into deep seated arguments and differences about how to do leadership and how to worship and oh it just got worse and worse and and uh, and in that context I'm I've been here for what fifteen years when that's happening or twelve or thirteen and I'm not I've never been through anything like this, okay? I, what, and uh, this, is all, this is what I have. I'm surrounded by wise counselors, but this is what we have. No, no book on this particular issue and how to do this. So you go to the book, and not knowing where we would wind up in terms of worship, will we keep, just being really candid, architecturally, if you look at the front of this church, do you wonder what that is up there, that, that space? What, what do you think that is, if you weren't here? That's a space for the biggest pipe organ in the Twin Cities. It was designed that way. These pipes were going to, some of them were going to be this one. We, we bought them. We bought them from Germany. They, we had them made, and you'll notice it isn't there. We lost 230 people over this. And people to this day, I'm still working on those relationships. I run into those people. So I didn't know, would we, would we go with the pipe organ or w- would we kill it? Which, which we did. We killed it. We lost $100,000. Lost it. We made a decision to lose it. Those pipes are probably in a warehouse somewhere still, 20 years later. I don't know. We tried for years to sell them, to get, recoup our, our money. And frankly, I've forgotten what happened. This was really hard. Uh, and I didn't know what we should do, where we should go. I just had a few strong convictions. And, and I wrote this for our people to try to hold us together. So you, there's, a, there's a lot of history behind these 11, what unites us. It would, how easy it would have been to preach on the five things that we disagreed on and just hammer my opinion, right? I'm going to get these people on one page here in my way or the highway. And, and I said, I, I frankly don't even know what we should do with regard to organ or not organ. Drums are not drums. The cars, the guitars are not guitars. Contemporary worship songs versus hymns. I just, I don't know what we should do. I like them both, and I don't know what proportion. Should we have two services, traditional and contemporary, which we never did, by the way. In 30 years, we've never gone that route. We just always felt, keep the people together, try to make it work. Don't have the older folks in one service with their hymns and the younger folks in one service with their, with their guitars. We, didn't, we just never went that way. And I, don't, I respect those, those churches who do, but we didn't feel called to. But we, we just said, here's what we're agreeing on. And, and God brought us through. Um, number one. God centeredness. A high priority on the vertical focus of our Sunday morning service. The ultimate aim is to so experience God that He's glorified. Come on the lookout for God, we would say, leave on the lookout for people. Trying to, as they came into the worship service, get them toward God rather than th- just uh, so much horizontal. Remove horizontal intrusions between vertical acts. So much could be said here that would, I think, help services flow in a sustained godwardness and vertical attentiveness. For example, just a little teeny when you wonder, what do you mean by that? I mean, if you're singing, you are Lord, you are Lord, you are risen from the dead, kind of dates me, right? You're risen from the dead and you are Lord, every knee shall bow. And in the worship folder is followed by a prayer of praise or a prayer supplication, or a pastoral prayer that's coming right after you, our Lord. You don't, you don't do this. You don't see. shall we pray? You're already praying. Little things. Why would, you, why would you say that? Shall we pray means you weren't praying. Everybody's praying right now. You're just carrying it. See, this, this, it's being aware of what are we doing? You are Lord. You are risen from the dead. And are. Every knee shall bow. every tongue. Is that you, O Christ, our Lord? Yes, Lord. So you're now in the pulpit. Yes, Lord. You are, and your lordship is the most important thing in our life. Just seamless. Just seamless. You're holding people right there in the presence of God. You're not getting. You're not intruding yourself. Now we will pray. And I'm sitting there saying, I'm like this. I'm like this. I'm like, That that it, it's a lack of thoughtfulness, or maybe a lack of in, engagement. So, remove horizontal intrusions. You don't need to talk much between events of worship. You don't need to narrate love making. Careful, <laughs> I won't go there. Two songs that make much of God and not man. Even the welcome is God. We talked about that. Number two, going hard after God is a value. That is, pursuing and expressing the deepest satisfaction in all that God is for us. So expressing from the pulpit, longing for God. Encouraging prayer before the service and in the service, seeking God to come and Meet us, teaching a Godward longing in all acts of worship. Third, expecting the powerful presence of God. We don't just direct ourselves toward Him. We earnestly seek His drawing near. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. We believe that in worship God draws near to us in power and makes himself known and felt for our good and for the salvation of unbelievers in the midst. God's not far but near, anticipating, being ready for his moving among us. The demeanor of those who stand before the face of God. What is that demeanor? We're expecting you to show up in power. Number four, Bible-based and Bible-saturated. The content of our singing and praying and welcoming and preaching and poetry will always conform to the truth of Scripture. The content of God's Word will be woven through all we do in worship. It will be the ground of all our appeal to authority. Preaching, expository exaltation will be central. Number five, head and heart. Worship that makes that aims at kindling and carrying deep, strong, real emotions towards God, but does not manipulate people's emotions by failing to appeal to their thinking about spiritual things based on shareable evidences outside ourselves. Keeping these together, head and heart, is the difference between emotion and emotionalism, between intellectual and intellectualism. 6. Earnestness and intensity. Avoiding a trite, flippant, superficial, frivolous atmosphere. But instead, setting an example of reverence and passion and wonder. We're very serious about being happy in God. Serious about being happy. Jokes are rarely fitting. Levity makes true worship harder. There is a difference between natural life humor, like I illustrated last night, and contrived communication humor. Heaven and hell are stupendous realities and deserve a certain demeanor. People are hungry for something different from the glib, chipper, silly fare of TV. It just absolutely boggles my mind that pastors... And worship leaders sometimes, more often pastors probably, feel like they need to duplicate the lightheartedness in a worship service that people get on the banter of talk radio or late-night TV. And I, I, just, I just don't get it. I, I'm, I'm out of my depth or something. I just, I watch it happen whenever I go on vacation, I watch it happen in places and I said, why, why? To to duplicate the emotion that they have everywhere else, lighthearted, flippant, superficial, frivolous, why would you do that? What, why? It, it's just out of sync with the magnitude of what we're about here. They need something else. They get that everywhere. Why wouldn't you do something else? And I think the fear is if we don't tap into that, They're going to be bored or unhappy or think we're unfriendly or something good is not going to happen. And uh, I think people are hungry not to be bored, not to be excessively solemn. They're hungry for something they know not what. Where have they ever tasted somebody who has met the living God, who created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power, And speaks about that God in a way somewhat in tune with His majesty. Where have they ever met that? Nowhere. Either they meet it here or they don't meet it anywhere. So, earnestness and intensity. Seven, authentic communication, the utter renunciation of all sham deceit, hypocrisy, pretense, affectation. See, the danger of what I just said is that the younger guys at this church, a lot of them are here in this room, will say, oh, okay, got to imitate John and the way he does things, you know? And then it's just phony. It's just phony. Everybody feels it's phony. You got to be you, right? But you want to pray you into a, a certain kind of you. you. You grow into a new you, a fuller you, but you, it's still you. Can't imitate me or anybody else. This starts to feel really... Weird and unreal when you take these principles and you say, okay, got to perform that. I have to perform intensity. Performed intensity is a contradiction in terms. Not the atmosphere of artistic or oratorical performance, but the atmosphere of a radically personal encounter with God and truth. I so ache that this church be real and i think i'm the main key here i'm the one who stands in front most often most of the time talking and they better feel john is not much impressed with himself he 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 knows he's an average husband at best he knows he's made mistakes as a dad he knows he's a a a pastor who has to apologize lots for the toes he steps on and he's he's not trying to He's it's just it's real, That's, and uh, you can't perform real. You, you still, either you are or you aren't, and so leaders from the front set the tone for the church. Are we going to be a real people who let it all hang out and, and care and love and forgive, or are we going to constantly be putting on a, a show Number eight, there's 11 of these, I think. The manifestation of God and the common good. We expect and hope and pray that our focus on manifesting God is good for people and that, therefore, a spirit of love for each other is not incompatible with but necessary to authentic worship. So there I'm trying to stress that all my emphasis on going vertical, sustaining vertical, keeping from intruding in vertical, one of the reasons we believe in that is that's really good for people and that it can awaken love for people, like I illustrated at the communion table as Kenny was speaking. He was speaking with such power and earnestness and seriousness about what we were about to do in the Lord's table, and I found my heart warming to my wife overcoming my frustrations with anything she might have said or done that day. We don't don't want to produce a cold people. If we're producing a cold people because of our vertical, then we're just not doing it right. Something's really fishy. Something's gone wrong. Number nine, undistracting excellence. There it is, the phrase I was talking to you about. We will try to sing and play and pray and preach in such a way that people's attention will not be diverted from the substance by shoddy ministry or by excessive finesse. Now notice, those are opposite ends. Elegance or excessive finesse, elegance or refinement. Natural, undistracting excellence will let the truth and the beauty of God shine through. So sound system, music playing, Welcome, lighting, heat, ushering, welcoming, parking, facilities, all undistracting from the aim of thinking about God. Avoid the flare of words and chords. This is for the preacher and this is for the pianist. Flare of words and chords that draw attention mainly to the performance and style, and not the substance. We don't have performances here in worship. When I grew up, I grew up in a church where you always had performances, a trio or a solo or, or somebody at the piano, and, and they were, and, and at the end, and you just wonder, what is that? What, what was that? Um, Now, Carol, I just got to sing Carol's praises for a minute. Carol has been on the piano for over 15 years downtown. And I have never in 15 years heard Carol make a mistake. Ever. Chuck, lots of times. (laughs) Are you here, Chuck? All right, he's not here. I've told him that. I love Chuck. He's just utterly real. He's utterly real. And Carol's just rescuing him. Regularly, <laughs> like he's off into some verse because he's loving it, and she's kind of bringing it back. <laughs> she's unbelievably gifted, and she can do everything. She can do boogie, bluegrass, perfect classical—the the, exactly the right things like you were doing with certain moments of—and then you just. So anyway, she, she's off the charts, uh, sensitive. To the moment. So that I doubt that our people hardly know she exists. She's just utterly, it's like a fixture behind the piano, an extension of, of that piano, making it serve the moment uh, whenever it, it, it should. And that's a, that's a beautiful, undistracting excellence. We are honored. And frankly, it's the same at each campus. I, I don't hear mistakes in music at this church very often. And uh, I chalk that up to God's kindness and grace. I think the church would be very forgiving if if we did, but it's wonderful when that's out of the way. And um, when I just want to go back to this right here. Shoddy ministry gets in the way, distracts people. So does excessive finesse. And uh, a, a wise, sensitive, in the spirit worship leader will know the difference between something really effective in his voice and something that is excessively finessing the moment you'll know the difference i don't want to frighten our worship leaders like i'm always displeased with something they do i'm almost never displeased number 10 Determination to welcome people different from ourselves for the sake of Christ. We aim to be more indigenous to the diversity of our metropolitan cultural setting, both urban and suburban, and uh, this is an important word. Racial togetherness says much about the power of God and His universal attractiveness. I wrote a whole book on this now, of the importance of this, and... uh, I just wanted to say it to our people. This is a value. This, is, this will have some implications. I'm not sure what they are. I haven't decided ahead of time what it means for music or whatever, but it's a value. And this is the final one. The mingling of historic and contemporary music in heartfelt congregational singing And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Bible says, sing a new song to the Lord, but clearly the psalms are themselves old songs. Remember the great works of old and don't be chronologically snobbish, as though only new is good or only bad is good. Mind the riches of the ages, speak the language and adapt and adapt some forms to the present. Speak the language of the present and adapt some forms to the present. So and you, you can see none of those 11 things settled anything in this church as far as how many hymns do you sing, what instruments do you use, how long will the services be, will there be two kinds of services? They didn't. They just emphasized 11 crucial things, and it had a preservative, unifying, healing effect on us. Let us pause there and see if you have a question about anything so far. Okay. We have 45 minutes. I'm not going to go all the way through this um, capturing our ethos, but I am going to dip into it. Um, Number five. Wait a minute. Where's capturing it? An effort. Number seven. I want to jump to number seven. An effort to capture our worship and music ethos. So here's the situation. I just thought this would be practically helpful. It's mid-90s. We've been in a mode of tears and self-analysis and repentance and self-searching and redefinition for two or three years, and it's time to hire a worship leader, call a worship leader who would take us. We're about 1,000 people in worship. And this is a letter that I wrote to a candidate. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a couple of parts of it. And the effort was uh, to capture for a candidate who we were to see if he fit. Um, and I was reading at the time, uh, Ernest Best, I have it here, Harold Best, I'm sorry, Harold Best's Music Through the Eyes of Faith, a very weighty book, I think, and good, very helpful, Music Through the Eyes of Faith. So I mentioned that I was reading that, and then I quoted him on this issue of how do you, how do, you do this? Bach to rock, remember? Okay? This is the high classical church, and this is the the, the rock-oriented, just down-to-earth, uh, everybody's in jeans and T-shirts. and um, And on that continuum, every church is located somewhere. So here, 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 here. And not just located, but if they are wise or we want it anyway to have a bandwidth of variety, so it 's not just a point moving on that line but rather it's a scope moving on that line like this and and wherever you pause it, wherever you stop it and say that 's who we are we we'll go we probably won't go farther than say Tomlin, okay that way maybe uh, here we probably won't go farther than John Rudder or this way? Okay. And, and and we can move around in there. We'll probably have an orchestra, but the orchestra will serve, totally serve the hymns. Um we'll try to be delicate in the way we handle percussion. It won't always be loud and driving, but but appropriate, and who defines that, you know. So that's the way we we, we were thinking. How do you do this? How how do you how do you get an identity and then say to the people that's who we are and then people leave. And then they come. And now, there are not many wars at Bethlehem anymore. Not everybody's happy with the way every campus does it, but we're pretty settled. But my, oh my, to get where we are in those years was very difficult. So here's the quote that I found helpful from Harold Best. There is nothing un- or anti-Christian about any kind of music. He's not saying lyrics. He means music. By the same token, there is no such thing as Christian music. That's controversial statements. That's what he says. Indiscriminate musical choice for the sake of attracting everybody means that there is no real centeredness. No real centeredness. No practical authenticity. At first blush, this sounds like a refutation of everything said and defended so far about pluralism. So he's made a big case for pluralism. That is, if there's no distinctively Christian sound, cadence, rhythm, then it's all usable. So pluralism. It sounds like, when I say this, that we're contradicting that. It's not. It is, however, a refutation of faceless pluralism. Given these facts, one, the best pluralists will always have limited, not infinite choice. Two, pluralism never substitutes for the pursuit of excellence. Three, pluralism is the act of discovering and relating to the centeredness of others from the vantage point of your own centeredness, as opposed to a faceless pluralism that's It has no center. It's just jumping everywhere indiscriminately. What churches cannot afford to do is to clone each other in order to keep up with each other, vying for souls. Rather, Church X, and this this was surprising to me as I read this book and helped, Church X, out of the Spirit-driven conscience, chooses a certain musical profile. A certain combination of centeredness and diversity. Okay, you see where I am getting this now? Oops. Here is the scope, Bach to rock. Centeredness means pick a point. Pick a point. You, you can't. You just can't be all this. You cannot be all this. You don't have the ability to be all this. And and you, uh, the people in your don't even know all this. It just so pick a point. Right, Here is our point. So that's. That's uh, centeredness. And, at the point, diversity. And it won't be total. It's just going to be what you can manage. Church Y goes another way with the same integrity. That was helpful. I don't know if it is for you. Because... If you try to be idealistic and say, what is the ideal combination? What's the ideal music? What's the proper music for Sunday morning? There's just no answer to that, if best is right, and I think he is. You've got to be you, but which you? Which faction of the congregation is you? And the leaders really are going to be big in this. And, uh, And you just have to discern with a spirit-given conscience, spirit-driven conscience, you choose a certain musical profile, listening to the… You know, it never was in this church. It never was old versus young, ever. Our younger people have put up some of the stiffest opposition to certain changes we've made, and some of the older people have, have been happy. It, it's, it's never, it, for, for us anyway, it's never been merely generational. It's governed by, there people have real strong opinions for other reasons than what age they grew up in. And uh, you listen and you, you move. So what I've been trying to do, I say to this, I think I may have written this to Chuck. I can't even remember who I wrote it to. It's 1996, I believe, is the date on it. So what I have been trying to do is give you a flavor... You, the candidate for worship pastor at this church, of our profile and centeredness and some of the diversity involved. It is almost impossible to do this without weeks together, but such is life. God will, make, will take what I have said and, as imperfect as it is, use it to guide us. Uh, it might help to let you read the ad we published as part of our search for a lead worshiper. I still love this ad. I think it's one of my best creations ever. (laughs) We put this in Christianity today, okay? I just think it it gets who we are so well. still does. Associate Pastor for Worship and Music, Bethlehem Baptist Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The mission of our 1,000 folks is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. This was... You see that on the wall up there, those last three words, through Jesus Christ? That was added about two, three years after this. This is a defective statement. That's more full. But that's where we were. Um, Joy of all peoples. We are Calvinistic in theology, Baptistic in polity, and Charismatic in affections. And my thought there is, scare everybody away. except that really rare person that we want calvinism yuck baptist uh charismatic yikes so it's just just don't don't want a lot of applicants and charismatic in our affections and driven by the truth that god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him Christian hedonism, worst of all, maybe. We are committed to old and new, fine and folk, depth and simplicity, head and heart, design and spontaneity, awe and intimacy. With unremitting God-centeredness, intensity and authenticity. We aim to be Bible-saturated, spirit-filled, soul-winning, culture-confronting. Age and ethnic diversity matter. That's a period right there. Age, old and young, and ethnic diversity matter. Worship leadership means worshiping contagiously in front of others, period, elder qualifications of First Timothy 3, 1-7 to expected, right to Tim Tomlinson, chair of the search committee. And the upshot of that was Chuck Stedham. And God was good to us. God was good to us. He was teaching music at Prairie Bible College. He was the academic dean, I think, at the time. And so clearly into, you know, the The more academic, reflective. He's got a Ph.D. since then. He's into ethnomusicology. He goes to Burma. I mean, this is the kind of guy you want, right? Goes to Burma and teaches worship, I mean, or Myanmar, and uh, cares about cross-cultural ethnic things. He's heavily into the city. Just, God was good to us. And uh, you should try to do this for your church, right? Just write an ad (laughs) for the kind of church you are and and the kind of people you want. Pause for question about anything I've said so far. Yes, the question is, what about jazz? She attempted to put a component of, of jazz and people's, many people's reaction was negative and part of the rationale was, um, the, I guess, the associations there with regard to prior life of drinking or whatever didn't help them. Um, now, um, that's going to be true with Rock music, or certain cadences for some people, it's just true with the drum, with the drum of any kind that we got that same response with drums, and uh, and I want to be delicately sensitive to that. I, I don't I don't want to push the envelope to a kind of beat or rock or country that has for hundreds of people has associations that make really hard getting to God, really hard. And so you you walk slowly and tenderly through that. And you may, I mean, I'll just be really honest with you here. This is the way leadership works, I think. Uh, Jason and the G-Men are here, okay? They don't call themselves that anymore, do they? It's It's just Jason, whatever, the Harms, Harms Quartet, I believe, something like that. So this is a jazz quartet. They're really good. And they, they go all over the, the world. They've been to South America. They've been to Europe. And uh, Jason's part of us here. And, and they've participated in, in uh, Maundy Night Thursdays. Now, I don't get jazz. Sorry. But I just don't get it. I, I mean, emotionally, it is less than zero for me. <laughs> all you jazz! I'm just so sorry. I just... I wish. I wish. I, it's not evil. It's not evil. I love Jason. I really love him. He's really good. And, but as far as the sounds, I, I just... I was like, that's just not helping me get to God at all. Now, the effect of that is, I, I say that to Jason. I say that to the guys, and they say, "Well, probably we shouldn't use it much because John doesn't like it." You know, and, and they do defer to me. So we, we, don't, we don't have jazz in Sunday morning usually. And if, if we did, Chuck would look at me and smile. <laughs> and I would smile back and we'd have a little conversation afterwards. And, and he'd probably do it again. But what we, so, in other words, the point of that is who you are as a people and as a leadership, are going to help this center. It's just going to. I, I, my my view of jazz is not a moral thing. I mean, it's, to me, it almost feels that way since it's just so unhelpful to me. But I want to keep saying it's not. It's not. It's not because I think Harold Best is right. No musical sound is sub-Christian in and of itself. Just emotionally, certain things work and and. Uh, and, and they may work just because of the way I'm wired. They may work because of the background. These people that associated with jazz with whatever, you know, smoky, late-night drinking bouts they had when they were uh, 19 years old or whatever, I, I, I don't know. So, yeah, and, and that would be true. I, I have, I'll give you, maybe this will balance it. There are gospel songs from the 40s that would be worse for me than Jazz. So it's not it's not mere association with world. There's world associations, and then I've got associations with songs that I grew up with, which were superficially, hypocritically sung by churches that didn't love God. Those associations just I want that song in this service. I don't like that song. It's 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 superficial. It's it's lighthearted. It's it's what they sang. So it's you know. We all we're just so different, and that's why this is so hard. Another question before I move on. Yeah, what? That's an excellent question. Bob should ask Bob that at one o'clock. What about repeated refrains? Um, um, traditional hymns have refrains. He sang four or five times with a verse in between. So, and Psalm one thirty six, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I called it gloriously monotonous when I wrote somebody about it. So, biblically, repetition is not an evil. However, we all we all have our limits. <laughs> we do, we do. Ev- everybody has a limit. You may be way at the you know, 35 times would, but 36 is too many. You may be an eighth person. Worship leaders, do it right. <laughs> just, <laughs> he just said that was very helpful. <laughs> um, i, I I've never stood in front watching a people as you sing, I um, can't think of one, uh, that goes on and on. But if I were a leader, I think I would just try to discern, are they with us still or are they dropping out? Are Are hundreds of people dropping out? Their hands are down. They're getting weary. They're looking at their shoes. And, you know, there's about 100 people who are really excited about this repetition. And, and you, you get the feel. There's times when I wish one more time one more time. Give us that verse. Repeat that verse. Repeat it a cappella because right now that just sank in and we need to have the instruments drop out and a third repetition of that verse. And it wouldn't feel like a repetition because the instruments are gone. It would feel like a final we. We are saying this now. We are really saying this. We did that. We did that with Bob a little while ago. So, um, yeah, Um, there needs to be a team who give feedback to the worship leaders, a, a, a gracious team, and, and just help. If, if he seems to be a little out of touch with where everybody else is, you say that. I, I think probably the third or fourth of time of that went, went beyond where we were, and that'll maybe help him. Okay, we have 20 minutes or so left, and I would like, I think, just to do this fight, fine and folk piece with you. Um, this is another way of um, helping a church find its center of how to do it, how to do worship. Chuck helped me with this. He, we've, uh, he's heard me do this before. He's not here now. And he cautioned me the, s- the second time I think he heard this that uh, it's more complicated than this ethnomusicologistically or whatever, ethnomusically, it, in other words, when, when you stir in the ethnic piece to this, it gets more complicated. So understand this for just what it is. It, it is bigger. I mean, there are bigger issues. There are more complicated issues. Just if this is this can be, if the slice that I'm dealing with, a folk and vine, can be a little bit helpful that you get your feet on the ground with regard to those two, then you'll be in, I think, a better position to say, okay, now how does that lay on top of black music? How does it lay on top of Myanmar? Shanghai? Because I'm, I'm clearly operating out of an American cultural identity when I write this. But it, it I think, oh, there you are. You are here, Chuck. And uh, so Chuck help me with that complicatedness. But I still think it's helpful to, uh, to just get this and then step out. The New Testament is very open-ended. Um, I think we've made that point. We don't need to say that again. Culture falls on a continuum of folk and fine. One way to describe the differences in how people approach worship is to speak in terms of fine culture and folk culture. By culture, I mean a pattern of life including uh, thought and emotion and speech and activity, by fine culture, I, I have in mind the pattern of life that puts a high priority on intellectual and artistic expressions that require extraordinary ability to produce and often demand disciplined efforts to understand and appreciate. Okay, got that? Fine culture. Folk culture, I have in mind the pattern of life that puts a high priority on expressions of the heart and mind that please and help average people without demanding unusual efforts. It can be very popular. For example, it's the difference between classical music and bluegrass, or easy listening, or rock, or show tunes, or oldies, or country western all of which are the music of the people, though I realize there is a continuum rather than a neat box for all kinds and qualities of music. Or another example would be the contrast between a Shakespearean drama, you can tell the datedness of this now, and The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> 25 years ago, whatever that was, um, any, any, any picture in a movie almost. Movie is, is pop culture, okay? Um, Shakespeare is not. People try to make it pop, but it, um, it's, it's complicated usually. It's very verbally adept. Whereas theater is, I mean, uh, popular movies are just, they want to make money and they want to appeal to the popular taste. Or one might think of the difference between reading Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poem, to Windover, The Windover to Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning's minion kingdom of daylight 's Dauphin dapple drawn dawn dawn drawn Falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing, like, what on earth does that mean <laughs> that 's one of the greatest poems you know you always read that in in literature classes, but you have to have a you have to have a thesaurus and a dictionary and a commentary to get it. I don't know what five of those words mean. But I was a lit major, so I know it exists. And, and uh, I, like, I like Hopkins. This poem doesn't move me, but others that he does. Or my dad read Edgar Guest, takes a heap of living to make a house a home. That's a poem. But it's not the wind over to Christ our Lord. That this, is, this is folk. This is fine. This is demanding and intellectual and rarefied, it requires a certain level of education to know what these words are and how poetry works. This, your average, run-of-the-mill ordinary person reading Edgar A. Guest, it takes a heap of living to make a house a home, going to get that just like that, feel it, and love it, unless, they, unless they're trying to be elitist and, and only want what's, you know, educated. Third, we should not pass judgment on fine culture or folk culture per se. So I'm not, I, want, I want to stress that fine and folk in and of themselves are not moral categories like bad and good. They're not. There are caricatures of the excesses of both that are easy to condemn. That's not our purpose. It's, our, it's more profitable to consider the strengths and weaknesses built into both of them. So as to avoid the weaknesses and affirm the strengths in both fine culture and folk culture have intrinsic vulnerabilities to sin and unique potentialities for god glorifying goodness. they are redeemable, both of them there are intrin- let 's take these now one at a time the vulnerabilities of each there are intrinsic vulnerabilities of fine culture so this if you if you 're a church that 's leaning towards fine and you believe where people ought to move is from the hoi polloi uh, popular radio stuff over towards higher appreciations for the more refined, then here are some of the vulnerabilities. Intrinsic vulnerabilities of high culture include elitism and snobbishness. In demanding high levels of intellect and skill, it easily inflates the ego to those who succeed in it and tempts them to look with contempt on folk culture, With its simpler achievements, it easily isolates technical expertise from the larger issues of life and attempt to uh, give intrinsic value instead of defining its value in relation to other more important spiritual and personal realities. It is inevitably less accessible to average people and therefore tends towards performance rather than participation. And this performance orientation carries, again, the tendency toward an atmosphere of aloofness and distant. It's sad that those caricatures are, are true. So those are, my, those are my warnings with regard to fine. Now, here's some vulnerabilities of folk culture. Intrinsic vulnerabilities of folk culture include laziness and carelessness. There is an intrinsic drift toward increasing indifference to simple disciplines that define excellence at the most rudimentary level. For example, using bad grammar in worship songs like, you reigneth. That's a real, that's a real phrase, you reigneth, instead of thou reigneth or reignest. Or having you and thou in the same line. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You're my glory. Where'd that come from? Why did they do that? Thou to you. Why shift from the 16th to the 20th century in the middle of the verse? Laziness. It's what they felt like saying in the bedroom as they were making this song up. Now, if I'm wrong about that, you come up and tell me. Now, you know who wrote that? You know exactly why they did it, and there's some deep reason. I don't think there's a deep reason. This is not like the word "ain't" in "You ain't nothing but a hound dog." This is this is like singing, "Thou ain't nothing but a hound dog." <laughs> ain't belongs with hound dog. Thou doesn't. And there are worship songs that just... It's like singing, thou ain't nothing but a hound dog. Folk culture, with its intrinsic anti-intellectualism, tends to short-circuit the mind and move the emotions with shortcuts. Thus, folk culture is not generally a preservative force for great biblical doctrine. On the balance between discipline and spontaneity, folk culture tends to err on spontaneity. I think our less helpful contemporary worship songs, and this might be true of old ones as well, are people who are strumming with their guitar in their bedroom or on their porch making notes and trying to come up with a song, and something comes to their mind and uh, it, it kind of works, and they go with it. And another hour's effort would have gotten a better word and a better wording that fits the cadence. It would have been a more precise rhyme, or there would have been a rhyme, or no rhyme. Or what, it, you, you, you sing it and you say, I don't think it took too long to write that. It, just, it doesn't seem to be a lot of effort that went into that song to choose a more effective word there. Or to, to wh- Why would we have two words there when one is perfect and fits the cadence? Why would you put two there when it, you cram, you're cramming them in when in fact leaving out the and or the but would just flow perfectly with the cadence? Why? And I, I don't have any answers except laziness or lack of ear, maybe, lack of poetic ear. So I I am at this point saying the vulnerabilities of pop culture uh, or of folk culture are um, unnecessary laziness. People are, it's not going to be less attractive to the populace if it works better. So work harder at your poetry. There are positive potentials for fine culture and folk. The positive potentials for fine culture include the preservation of what we might call the life of the mind, preservation of the life of the mind. Fine culture is more likely than folk culture to inject into the stream of society the commitment to think hard and think clearly. It's more likely than folk culture to keep the intellect from atrophying it is especially crucial that Christians not surrender the life of the mind to the secular world first because it belongs to God and he has commanded us to love him with our minds and second because we will lose succeeding generations if we do not intellectually if we do not have intellectually credible expressions of faith to pass on to them further The culture, the fine culture, has the potential of preserving uh, the very concepts of truth and excellence and beauty as objective ideals rooted in God as our absolute. Folk culture tends always to exalt what works. It is intrinsically pragmatic and colloquial and does not measure its achievements in terms of objective, absolute ideals, but generally in terms of wide appeal and practical effect. Fine culture... "...tends to march to the beat of a drummer other than mass appeal or practical effect. At its best, it strives to create images of excellence and beauty and truth that echo more faithfully the ultimate excellence of God. Fine culture thus has the potential, if not contemporary success, of helping preserve the real complexities of truth and thus guarding against the intrinsic tendency of folk culture toward oversimplification and eventual distortion." Fine culture has the potential of touching some emotions that folk folk culture will not touch. Folk culture tends toward what can be commonly shared and therefore minimizes what is rare. However, some emotions that belong to God are rare and profound and may be awakened and carried best through expressions of fine culture. For example, there are probably some senses of grandeur that find it, Preservation and expression best in some grand and magnificent artistic statements that are not part of folk culture. And probably the most widely known one is Handel's Messiah. Now, a lot of good things about fine in that here, here, here's my attempt to be positive um, because, frankly, I, Chuck, Dan, Jason, we lean towards folk. And there's theological reasons for that. I don't know if they use that language, but we do. Um, There are positive potentials of folk culture. The positive potentials of folk culture include meeting people where they are in order to communicate. Jesus left heaven and became a carpenter. And he called fishermen. And the, the people heard him gladly, and the elitist killed him. Folk culture affirms the importance of building bridges of shareable experience. It is a go-tell mentality rather than a come-see mentality. It goes the extra mile to make its vision accessible to the average person. It takes a heap of living to make a house a home is more likely to find its way into worship at Bethlehem than the wind over to Christ our Lord. The wind over to Christ our Lord, the Hopkins poem would simply impress people that they didn't know what it meant. Whereas the other, if it were adapted appropriately in a sermon or whatever, would be understood broadly, and we want, we want to get our arms around people Folk culture keeps the truth clear that elite groups of intellectuals and artists that look with contempt upon common man and his needs and tastes are not admirable persons, no matter how accomplished their talents. Folk culture has the potential of reminding us that God must have loved the common people because He made so many of them. I think Abraham Lincoln said that. Folk culture is by nature incarnational. It clothes its claims with of ordinary people and affirms implicitly the value of getting um, through that was distracting, lack of excellence there through to the mind and heart of the masses. Folk culture, at its best, has the potential of touching emotions that fine culture will not generally touch. Now, notice I'm balancing the scales here. I said there are some emotions that Handel's Messiah, um, Rudder's Gloria, They, they will touch that no folk orientation will ever awaken in the same depth or way. But the same is also true in the other direction. The folk culture at its best has potential of touching emotions that fine culture will not generally touch. Thus, folk culture honors the preciousness of average wonders. Falling in love, taking a walk. Sounds like country music now, right? Taking a walk, eating a good meal, talking to a friend, swimming in the ocean, having a baby, planting a garden. All these are likely to be the subject of folk culture creations and communications. It helps us not neglect ordinary beauty. Elitists can miss things in their quest towards refined excellence. All we do is on a continuum between folk and fine. In the church, all that we do falls somewhere on the continuum between fine culture and folk culture, uh, admitting these um, ethnic cultural complexities that Chuck reminds me of. Our music, our architecture, our furnishings, our dress, our written materials, our preaching and teaching, our conversation between services is all on that continuum. And I think it would be good for you to think about that and make choices. It, it, it clearly... I mean, we, we live in a heavily folk-oriented time of church. I am just about the only person. There may be half a dozen others who wear a suit to preach in and come to worship. I look out on a sea of people who are dressed unlike me. It's not intended as a condemnation. It's intended as a robe. You know, some denominations wear robes. The pastor puts on a robe. There's a reason for that. It keeps... There, from being any distraction to the variety of his dress. He's always the solemn, serious, black-robed proclaimer of the Word of God, and nobody thinks anymore. After you're there a few Sundays, he always wears that robe. John Piper has worn the same suit for eight years. I've had three suits in 30 years. I've worn them every Sunday. I wore for 10 years the suit I got married in. I wore a vest and a silver cross around my neck for 10 years, Got rid of the cross eventually. People didn't understand what that was about. Um, took off the vest. And now the only thing I change is my shirt and tie. And I wonder if people think about that. Oh, he's got a different tie on tonight. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying something about this pulpit. This is not the pulpit, but this pulpit, this moment, this, this, the meaning of this. I'm saying something about it. Now, if you choose to wear a t-shirt and jeans with tears in them to preach in, you're saying something. It's not necessarily false. What you're saying is Jesus came to the real world. That's the way people here in Portland, Seattle, Gaithersburg dress. And I will not try to be above them. Piper does. He tries to be above them. You know, that you, you, you might feel that way. I'm just going to totally go with the flow of folk culture, because Jesus did. Okay? And I I don't get on a crusade to get everybody to, you know, dress differently. I, I do feel like there are pitfalls to that. There are kinds of things that you'd like to happen in worship, kinds of affections you want that beach garb doesn 't help make happen it doesn 't help it kind it, of it, it, it communicates a certain relaxed casual and and if God showed up we wouldn 't be relaxed and casual in other words there 's relaxed and casual is a true thing about god he 's our father. He loves us as we are. You don't have to put on any airs with God, and and I think the whole movement is saying that. Fooey on that old put on your best stuff at Easter time and put on your hat and dress up on Sunday. Fooey on that stuff. Be real. I think that's what it's all about. And it it says something that may not be true. Like you're not real if you feel like Sunday morning is more like a wedding than the beach. Hardly anybody in the 20-somethings and 30-somethings kicks against dressing up a little bit for a wedding. Almost everybody dresses up a little bit for a wedding. Why? It's just done, you know. So if it were just done... So there are pitfalls. And uh, it's not a a hill I'm going to die on. Um, I've, I've... I've tried and failed at various uh, levels of control in that regard. And uh, I just, I, I think the bigger picture will, will help. And uh, the tide will turn and suddenly Mark Driscoll will be wearing a tie every Sunday. And <laughs> who knows, he might even put on dockers, you know, <laughs> take off his boots And then uh, things will change. It's going to happen. <laughs> um, we should take the strengths and weaknesses of both into account in our planning. I think uh, about our worship forms and about the general tone and atmosphere of our church. We should take the possible weaknesses and potential strengths of the fine culture, folk culture into account. We will hopefully be able to affirm all that is good in both cultures, find a way both to be ourselves, so that centeredness, which is partly inevitable, and be what we need to be to honor the excellence and truth and beauty of God and reach out to all kinds of people. So there's the tension. I want to magnify these aspects of God that seem to be more greatly magnified with this statement uh, in music rather than that one. And yet, I don't want to sing in a way, play in a way that everybody feels alienated because it's from another world. This will be an ongoing process not a once-for-all discovery. Let's just uh, see if there's a question or two here at the end, I'm going to close in prayer, and we'll leave out that uh, um, 10 Practical Ways for Hearing. That's all in the book anyway. So, questions? Got about two minutes left, two or three minutes. Here, then there. I th- aren't, aren't all these in the book that you have, more or less? I, maybe they're not. Oh, I thought they were in that book. Um, Where's the book? If they're not, th- yes, they're 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 available, or we can make them available. So I'll check afterwards. If, if everything I've said here is not in that book, then um, we'll uh, we'll get them up. We'll get them up for you. All the all these are available. My guess is if you s- the folk and find thing is probably at the website, but I will check and uh, and make sure. So you can go to the website and search for these things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I just have so much admiration for anybody who attempts to start a church from scratch and then grow it with these kinds of things in mind. I've never done it, and therefore I'm probably not the best person to give you counsel. Who you are and what you start doing will probably make it easier for some people to come to your assembly than others. Okay, now that's the group you've got to work with. They may, they're on that spectrum somewhere and you see they're way off the end of folk and have zero appreciation for the life of the mind. And you've got to stay with them, you know. You can't leave them. you are going to stay with them. And you'd like them to be able to read a, a good book by the Puritans or just read a book. I mean, they're amazing. Totally non-readers. <laughs> totally non-readers. Um, and, and so... Uh, you, you, you love them and you preach to them and you nurture them and, and you get a long view here. You think of their children and what kind of youth ministry you're going to have and what, how you will build a mindset into that uh, next generation. And then you will try to include, I would presume, kinds of things in what you say and what you recommend that would, that would help them along. It's just—it's a process of maturation. You don't want to present to them like when you grow up, you'll really like you know Shakespeare and John Rutter and Handel's Messiah. And now you're just little babies, and you don't—you don't want to communicate that at all. You just want to feed them what they can handle. And Paul says, by this time you ought to like meat, and I still have to give you milk. That's the doctrinal picture of the whole thing. We want to bring our people along in to the, the depths of doctrine. And there's just something about Christianity and the fact that it's based on a book with Jesus underneath it that inclines us to become more adept at the life of the mind. If you go to a preliterate culture, this would be the extreme, okay? Go to Papua New Guinea, and there's a tribe, and you want to reach the tribe. They've never written down their language at all, and you come and say, the true God has spoken to us in this... Your goal for them over the next 25 or 30 or 50 years would be that the language be written down, the Bible be translated into it, and scholars be raised up who can read Greek and Hebrew and in 100 or 200 years provide the very best translation and life guidance imaginable. That's what I think that's what missions should think is that, okay, That may sound elitist. Oh, you're going to destroy their, you know, their oral orality, their oral culture. God chose to reveal himself in a book. Now, our situation is just a little more refined. People will come into your church. They're just not readers. They're totally visually oriented and still God's book. So you're going to try to help them by your exposition. Love the Bible. When they start loving the Bible, they're going to want to read it better. To read it better, they're going to read a book about it, and and you're off to transformation. Um, I need to stop because the time is up. Did you want to say something, Josh, or just, just 1.30? Now. Oh, I'm sorry. Clarifying. Back here, if you want to be with, with Bob, and I hope you do, at one thirty, not 1 o'clock. So thank you, thank you for being here. I know some of you came a long way. Intimidates me to think of how much some of you invested to be here, and I will pray now for you that that the impossible job that you have, will um God will do for you what he's done for us when we're knocking our heads against the table saying God, we don't know how to how to make this move or how to keep the people together or how to do this and he he comes through he just comes through so father thank you for the friends who have been together now for this time and i pray for all their churches all their relationships in those churches. I pray for their hearts and their hungers that you'd awaken them and that you'd make them deeply worshipful people. And then bring their churches along and, and unify the churches around a vision for what corporate worship can be. Glorify your name and strengthen and deepen, refine your church I pray In Jesus' name.